Hello and welcome back to the Movable Type podcast, brought to you by University College London. Movable Type is a graduate peer-reviewed journal edited every year by PhD students from the English department at UCL. Please be sure to follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest issue, new episode releases, and more. We are on Twitter at Movable Type UCL, Instagram at Movable Type underscore UCL, and Facebook as Movable Type or at MTUCL. And if you want to browse our latest issue while you listen, head on over to ucl.ac.uk slash movable hyphen type. This month, we looked at the fascinating multidisciplinary field of environmental humanities. We understand the concept of environmental humanities is in itself quite complicated and encompasses countless areas of research. Therefore, we have aimed to provide a broad overview of some of its infinite possibilities. Though far from comprehensive, we hope the conversations in this episode will inspire many more and be of interest to both people already familiar with and completely new to the topics covered. Before we start, an exciting announcement. We had so much to share with you, we decided to make this a two-part episode. First up, our interview with Mark Bould, professor of film and literature at UWE Bristol and major figure in science fiction scholarship. In 2016, he was awarded the SFRA Pilgrim Lifetime Achievement Award for critical contributions to the study of science fiction and fantasy. Today, we chat with him about his latest book, The Anthropocene Unconscious, Climate Catastrophe Culture, published by Verso in 2021. Hi, Mark. Thank you for being here with us today. Um, your book is really amazing. So. Thank you for coming on. How are you today? I'm very good and feel better for hearing that people are enjoying the book. It was a weird experience writing it. An absolute pleasure <laughs> to be here. Thank you. How can we know it? It's a really, really fun book. Um, but to start us off, uh, so the Anthropocene Unconscious pushes back against uh, Gosh's claim that literary fiction has ignored climate change. And you often bring up uh, Frederick Jameson's uh, concept of rewriting the text in terms of a particular master code, which I found such a useful analogy. So for people who have not read it yet, uh, and will of course be compelled to read your book right after this interview, can you outline the core of this uh, process of uncovering the Anthropocene unconscious and give us a brief overview? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I started off with uh, Amitav Ghosh because I, I find his book, The Great Derangement, fascinating. And, you know, it's one of those books that I agree with every other day and then I'm frustrated by on the in-between days. And he has this argument that serious literary fiction, as he calls it, I call it mundane fiction throughout. That's an old science fiction fandom joke. Um, <laughs> has ignored climate change. It's not able to deal with uh, the way the way the novel is developed, particularly in English um, has been to focus down on very specific social, economic, class um, locations and generally small locations. And in doing so, it's lost the capacity of the romance or the epic to deal with uh, large scale um, settings, global settings uh, and long periods of time as well. And of course, there are exceptions to that. Um, you know, it's not an absolute uniform pattern. So... 
I, I was very provoked um, by this argument, which I find largely um, convincing. But having grown up reading probably far more science fiction than uh, mundane fiction, um, I, I found this also a really odd way of reading those novels. Part of that also ties into, as you say, Frederick Jameson and um, also Pierre Machere's reading of uh, texts as possessing an unconscious realm that um, we can only ever infer. Um, but one of the tools we can use to draw out their unconscious is um, reading from a specifically designated perspective. So rather than reading innocently, naively, or from with our own, within our own um, unconscious situatedness, we bring in, uh, you can bring in an idea um, and read through, read, filter the text through that idea. And with Jameson, it's always the mode of production. So for him, uh, the textual unconscious is always about the way capitalism is shaping the fiction and the ideological realm in which uh, the fiction operates. But you know, one of the, the tricks I learned very early on uh, when I first encountered queer film theory back in, I don't know, the early 90s, um, was to watch films, but don't assume everybody in the film is straight. Um, and that radically transforms your understanding of, you know, what seem like very straightforward heterosexual, heterosexist, uh, heteronormative movies. And I give some uh, examples of that very briefly uh, in the book. But oh, the one that struck me was, you know, the ending of Die Hard when uh, uh, John McClane comes out of the skyscraper. He's finally reunited with... Um, the, the, the policeman or finally united with the policeman he's been talking to and um, there's this kind of rising uh, strings as their eyes meet across the crowded car park <laughs> um, John McLean's wife um, who has not been using the McLean surname in her new job is edged out of the frame completely and she has to thrust herself back into the frame and uh, McLean introduces her by her by her name um Holly Generis, and she insists she's Holly McLean. This kind of, she senses there's something going on between these men. Um, and of course, the whole sequence ends with um, one of the killers, um, one of the supposed terrorists emerging from the building and this uh, feminized, um, disempowered black cop able to pull out his large weapon and discharge it to save Bruce. And of course, this is incredibly rich queer reading. So what I do with the book is very, very similar. Um, I weigh, make this opening wager that all, all contemporary culture is in some way about climate change. And the task you set yourself is to read from the perspective of climate change being there, evident in the traces, the unconscious, um, of the text you're looking at. So I deliberately exclude for the most part science fiction. I deliberately exclude for the most part climate fiction, which is one of those categories I don't quite understand the usefulness of, and instead <laughs> look at a wide range of um, literary texts, of um, what you might think as paraliterary texts, of movies, comics, and see where we can uh, find climate speaking to us in those texts. And I set myself very deliberately the challenge early on that uh, the conclusion was going to be about the Fast and Furious franchise. 
or you need to end by going right into the kind of heart of the petrocultural beast and see what we can find in it of use for us in this current uh, conjuncture. That's amazing. I mean, hearing that, how can you not um, want to read the text? And actually, it's funny that you mentioned that that's the title, like you came up with the conclusion and you knew it was going to be about the past and the furious because even the title, the dialectics, dialectics sorry of Dominique Toretto is just it grabs you right away <laughs> yeah it was one of those lovely moments in the long drawn out process of writing the books uh writing the book where I had a, a block of research time and then a long stretch before I could come back to it and I was stuck at how I was going to end the book and I was just looking through my notes and thought oh I've already written the last line for the book I just need to work to that I'd completely forgotten <laughs> that I knew where I was ending that sounds like amazing advice for any writing process i'm yeah. sure our listeners will very yeah, much appreciate absolutely. it don't don't discard those notes and those drafts <laughs> um so on the topic of uh the text selection you have established you very decidedly stayed away from most sci-fi and uh cli-fi um but yeah the the texts are like the selection is so delightfully omnivorous uh, it ranges from Sharknado to Jane Austen and a myriad of stuff in between. And I think, uh, I think, and you brought this up, it is very fitting to current models of literary and cultural analysis where, you know, we're looking at cultural production in general. But how did you end up choosing what text to focus on? Because if there is such a vast range of texts you can draw from, how, how did you make the cut? It, 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 it was quite a curious process. Some of it is driven by Gauche. Um, he explicitly says in his book that um, Paul Kingsnorth, Arundhati Roy and himself, people who um, in their non-fiction write a lot about climate, never address it in their fiction. This is before his most recent novel, um, Gun Island, came out. So I took that as a challenge. I'm going to look at those three authors um, and draw out climate change or Anthropocenic concerns from their fiction. So that was quite an easy challenge. The Sharknado stuff really arose because uh, um, I was pitching the book to Verso and I was determined to write about something no one else uh, on the Verso list would touch. Um, and uh, the, the chapter where I write about contemporary art house cinema, part of that arose from uh, a piece I wrote for a Boston Review a few years ago in their Global Dystopias issue, where I wrote about um, this amazing Spanish uh, slow documentary called Dead Slow Ahead. Um, and the challenge was to write about it and to try and draw out the effective dimensions of the film. And then the, the, it, it just made sense to have a chapter that focused then on art house cinema that was about development projects, about global shipping um, and things like that. So those, that group of films sort of came together quite naturally. Uh, the, the chapter that's about trees, for a long time it was actually going to be a chapter about rocks, but I, I couldn't quite find either the texts or the capacity in myself yet to write um, from what we might think of as a geological perspective. I was trying to get to some kind of non-human temporality and then trees came to my rescue. I happened to be uh, uh, on holiday with my partner in Arizona visiting her family and uh, we we're on a road trip 
and I'd happened to pick up uh, the overstory, uh, Richard Power's novel, from from her mum's library, and I just sat quietly in the back of the car for like eight hours and read it cover to cover in one go. Um, and that's when trees came to my rescue. And of course, once you have trees, you want to bring in um, the more ligneous uh, superhero characters like um, Man Thing, uh, Swamp Thing, and Groot. So it's a kind of um, the, the, there's a kind of flashes of insight of things I wanted to talk about and a webbing together of text that then made sense, but also determination to uh, not handicap myself in quite the same way that Gauche does by um, only dealing with what he calls serious literary fiction. He has a, a series of uh, you know, quite gentlemanly asides um, about leaving <laughs> out science fiction, um, and he, he, he has a sense of what science fiction is capable of doing, um, but sets that aside because of you know who his who his general readership are who his target audience for the book are but then it came to me um very early on as well that i didn't want to write the counter text of you know gosh don't be silly look at what science fiction's doing because that's how i actually came to his book my um social media was suddenly full of uh, people who'd read reviews of his book rather than his book saying well this is just silly he should read science fiction and of course, Ghosh is a, an award-winning science fiction author. He got the Arthur C. Clarke Award for Calcutta Chromosome, for example. Um, so it's not like he doesn't know science fiction, but it was a deliberate move by his. And I didn't want to come back with that um, simple response. And there are lots of other people doing that kind of work already. So my friend Andrew Milnos just recently had a book out from uh, Liverpool University Press about science fiction and, and climate change, for example. So I wanted to find something different that isn't so much... Um, a rejection of Gauche as a kind of um, an attempt to refine some of his argument or to add something to his argument because of, you know, largely because of self-imposed limitations, um, but also this really, really curious thing that he seems like a really poor reader of fiction uh, or have a really limited <laughs> understanding of um, how lively our relationship with text is. Because we're constantly mm -hmm. switching between reading with the grain and reading against the grain. We're constantly drawing out what texts are about and creating meaning from text. But um, he himself in this book, and um, he has this imaginary scenario of future humans in a climate catastrophic world, looking back at the cultural production of our time and just finding silence. And then, well, you know, that assumes people in the future have forgotten how to read. Um, yeah. So it's about wanting to counter those bits of his argument or elaborate a response to those bits of his argument. Yeah, I think you're really onto something sort of um, highlighting how we read. We are going through a time where everyone is being prompted to read things into culture in a way that I've personally don't think has ever done before. I don't know if you're into um, YouTube video essays, for example, after you find a queer Marxist analysis of like the Barbie films, you, you really feel like the possibilities are endless. Yeah. And, you know, the one, one thing I would do is I would never describe it as reading yeah. into, I would describe it as reading. Um, because, you know, we all, all we ever yeah, have are the words on the page, the images point. and sounds on the screen. And we do a tremendous amount of creative, critical work with them just in everyday consumption, let alone when we set ourselves the task of uh, producing criticism. Yeah, 
absolutely agree. Um, in a blurb uh, at the back of your book, uh, the co-editor of Green Planets points out, if the Anthropocene unconscious weren't so fun to read, it might be too terrifying to think about, which I wholeheartedly agree. Um, it is such a compelling and funny book in a way that often academic texts do not allow themselves to be, which is a shame in my opinion. But yeah, your authorial voice there is so present. Um, there's even cursing, which was so refreshing uh, to read in a theory book. Um, and also in your latest blog update, you mentioned that it has been really odd to be published trade uh, rather than academic uh, and by a press who seem to actually want to sell copies. Uh, so could you just tell us a little bit more about the experience of what's happened with the release of the book, but also just, yeah, deciding to write trade. Um, yeah, just a insight into that process because we'd love to. Yeah. More. Um, so, you know, it's one of those things that will un undoubtedly annoy grad students, but writing academic prose, I find actually really easy because I've done it for so long and so much of it, that it is one of those things that you churn out and, you know, you refine it, you... Um, do what you can to make it interesting and engaging but it's a it's a, a mode of writing that presents all kinds of opportunities and possibilities but also um, tends to have um, a very restricted audience for multiple reasons not least the iniquitous state of academic publishing being so profit driven um, so so much stuff gets firewalled um, or you're having to pay excessive amounts to access material. So the, 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 that's really annoying, let alone, um, you know, what we often find in academic writing is um, a mode of address that can be seen as full of jargon, uh, a tentativeness, a um, so much passive voice, um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, a humorlessness. Um, and, you know, with, with this book, I wanted to try and reach a, a, a broader audience, a slightly different audience to the one I'd normally reach. So actually what I pitched to Verso originally was, um, a really substantial volume that's much more like a conventional academic volume. And Rosie, my, who became my editor, um, came back to me and said, you realise you've pitched two different books here. And one of them is this, this kind of more slender, popular, accessible book. And the other is a big fat theory book. Do you want to do both? And can you do the uh, popular, accessible one first? So I said yes to that. I've actually changed my mind about doing that big, fat, more theoretical book because I enjoyed writing this one so much. And what I want to do is rework um, a lot of the material that got left out into one or two more uh, books like this one. So, so that was part of it. And then finding the voice for this kind of writing was the next challenge. Um, and fortunately, uh, Gino Diaz had asked me to write that piece for Boston Review and I'd, I'd, I'd written a couple of other things for them since then. And I found a different voice emerging as a consequence of that. So that was, you know, what I reached for and developing that voice and having the freedom to switch between registers. Um, so there is some quite dense theory in there, in there, but also, as you, as you say, there's some swearing as well. And there are jokes and there's wordplay. And it's very much uh, Charlie Mayable's influence that um, led me to um, have this kind of, desire for 
a richness of language, uh, 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 an appetite for language. And as I discovered in the process of writing the book as well, um, a lot of alliteration. I, I, I've never thought of writing <laughs> alliteratively, but there's a lot in there which uh, surprised me. But you have those moments when you're trying to write about trees and their interdependencies and, you know, an expression like cellulose, cellulose socialism appears to you, and that has to go in. Um, but yeah, the, the, the other weird bit is um, in terms of being published trade, um, oddly enough, Rosie, my editor, was also the editor of my partner who was published academic uh, by Verso. So very different experience. I have two publicists, one in the UK and one in the US. Obviously, they're not just my publicists. Uh, they've each got you know, <laughs> dozens or hundreds of books they're responsible for. Um, I was in on a sales meeting, a, a big call to try and uh, one of those things that I'd never done before, where it's basically having to enthuse a sales team about getting the book into stores in the US and, and Europe, which was odd. Um, and then uh, promotional work around the book. Um, so um, getting reviews, getting review copies out and having reviews before the book's even been published rather than waiting two years for a review at the back right. of an academic journal. It, it, it's quite terrifying. Fortunately, with one exception, they're all really quite positive uh, reviews. Um, and then uh, being asked to do podcasts, asked to um, do book launch. So I had my first ever book launch. This is like my, depending on how you count them, this is sort of like my 14th book. Um, but I actually had a, a book launch in a bookstore with an audience of like 50 people, um, uh, which was shocking. And then having funding <laughs> to go to uh, the Edinburgh Radical uh, book fair and um, be on a panel there Amazing. with a couple of brilliant writers as well so it's really really different um, and then publishing writing pieces to publish elsewhere so you know um, arranging to have pieces in uh, the Los Angeles Review of Books uh, an extract in Boston Review a piece on the Verso blog um, a failed it must be said attempt to do an op-ed for The Guardian um, oh no <laughs> yeah I, I handled that really badly um but, you know, it, it, it's an experience I'd never had, so it's unsurprising I um, screwed up some of it. So, yeah, it, it's really, really odd. And then just the random stuff is I've been getting fan mail. You weren't getting fan mail before with all your... Well, you know, you, you, you make connections at academic conferences or throughout your writing, and then people write in this quite formal tone of asking you questions yeah. and what have you. But then just yeah. people randomly out of the blue tracking you down and um, just writing and thanking you for the book. And saying things like, you know, it's not a lot of fan mail. It, you know, this isn't you know, breaking Postman's back or anything <laughs> like that. But yeah, it, it, it's, and fortunately, it's been a very positive experience. I could imagine if people had taken against the book, I wouldn't be enjoying it anywhere near so much. But it, it is such a great book. So the response is to be expected. Um, it's interesting that you say that you started writing these articles for these outlets after, because reading some of them, I found again, this authorial voice that was so fun and I, it didn't occur to me that they came after the book. So was it really the this book in particular that helped you um, create that or like develop is more uh, accurate, um, this tone that strikes this balance between the theory and the conversational so well? Yeah, it is, um, part of it is just the experience of 
years and years of teaching where to make what you're doing interesting and lively and keep students' attention and what have you, you have to do that kind of code switching. You have to be prepared to go from something, you know, highly conceptual to um, helping understand those ideas in more commonplace terms. So that's one of the beauties of teaching is you're constantly um, engaged on multiple levels. So that that turned out to be a real help. But um, because of the kind of odd time sequence of writing the book, there was, um, I, having discovered this voice or started this voice, there were moments of having to share it with um, friends, uh, colleagues, um, especially my friend Dan Hassler-Forrest, who was writing his books about Janelle Manaya at the same time, and we were trading back and forth and supporting each other through the difficulties of writing. Um, finding the voice um, required actually a lot of editing. One of the one of the things I teach um, is, is professional writing about film. Um, and, you know, the key is always get words on the page and then edit down and edit down and edit down and edit down and edit down. Um, so there's actually quite a lot of um, framework that's not visible in this book. It has, it, it has its own unconscious where um, there was material in there that needed to be there for me to do the thinking, but I didn't think was necessary for the reader uh, to understand where the argument was going. So it was that long process of cutting away. And then there was a long gap before writing the last couple of chapters where I completely lost the voice. I couldn't find it. So I had to very hastily write um, the last couple of chapters in a much more conventional academic prose because I could churn that out quite quickly and then spent ages having to... Um, translate that into the voice of the rest of the book so it's a very odd process very peculiar process but also really rewarding because it's that kind of writing where what you have in front of you isn't just the connecting together of ideas um it's a set of puzzles about how to express things you know it, it's using that wordle part of your brain a lot uh, to find the right word and how to connect them and how to punctuate them and things like that and when to write in conventional sentences and when to allow yourself to break grammatical rules and things like that. So it's a, you know, a, a really, really exciting uh, process but also a lot of hard work that um, for me I wouldn't have had if I was writing this in uh, a much more conventional academic tone. Absolutely. Great job, <laughs> once again. Um, but uh, getting back to uh, questions of genre, uh, you mentioned you grew up reading uh, more sci-fi uh, than uh, what you call mundane fiction. So uh, two questions. First, um, do you think sci-fi has uh, primed you for thinking uh, with like large-scale apocalyptic forces in mind? So that allows you to connect to the issues of climate change more. Um, and also just, yeah, from there, uh, thinking about the usefulness of approaching climate change through the lens of genre, because you've chosen not to do that. Uh, but yeah, you are interested in speculative fiction and you've kind of uh, stated that um, you don't find the concept of climate fiction useful um, as a category. So. Uh, could you please expand on on that a little bit? Yeah, I, th I think that first that first question is a re has this kind of really interesting counterfactual uh, 
potential to it. I think one of the things, um, it, it's not just about reading science fiction. Uh, part of it is that kind of vulgar Marxist upbringing, you know, that you have more in common with the international working class than with the capitalist class. Um, and that's also always been laced with these kind of green elements. Growing up dirt poor, we grew our own vegetables because we had to. And also we grew up on the edge of Dartmoor. So there's always been a kind of green uh, strand running through, I think. And that's also undoubtedly shaped my taste for SF, but also within SF as well. Um, but I suspect, having read so much SF, this is why I'm... This has disabled me in some way in terms of appreciating mainstream bourgeois fiction. A lot of it just baffles me. So the other day I was talking to a grad student being supervised by a friend of mine is doing a, a PhD on eco-pessimism. And we we're talking about uh, Mad Max Fury Road and Cormac McCarthy's The Road and the endings of those films and the kind of ambiguities uh, of those texts, sorry, and the ambiguities and ambivalences within them. And I had to admit that Cormac McCarthy's The Road, I just cannot understand why people like it. It's pretty mediocre if we read it as science fiction, but I don't understand why people find it moving. And yet that's the most common response you get when you, um, you know, when you look at uh, reviews of it, favourable reviews of it, um, online commentary on it. People find it genuinely moving. And I just cannot find that in the text. And that, I suspect, is partly because I haven't grown up really in a way that uh, I've been encountering and valuing uh, that kind of bourgeois fiction of sensibility. Um, so I think science fiction's helped me in some ways, but it's also, um, and it's perhaps has helped me with this kind of reading for the unconscious as well, because uh, when reading mainstream bourgeois fiction, I still have that thing of looking for ideas, looking for concepts. Now in science fiction, often those ideas, you know, science fiction likes to think of itself as a literature of ideas, you know. To be honest, some of it is, but most of it is a literature of conceits, particular kinds of conceits. But you look for them in their elaboration, and that tends to be missing from mainstream literary fiction. And um, whether science fiction has a particular link with ecological uh, thinking as well, I think one of the things about science fiction, I don't think we can generalise about genres in the way that the concept of genres uh, encourages us to, but... I think science fiction has a relatively unique mix of potentials that lend it to ecological concerns. It has a global imaginary. It's capable of taking the long view, um, historical, geological, cosmic timescales. And it's capable of um, setting up uh, interplays between scales and between temporalities. It's fascinated with... Uh, the definitions and the limits of the human with alterity, with other modes of being. It has this capacity for imagining otherwise. And also, um, it knows how to do exposition, which a lot of climate fiction is terrible at. Um, it has uh, this long tradition and, and well-established capacity to engage with and... Uh, imaginatively inhabits science. It can do empirical depictions, but also what we might think of as metaphorical elaborations or symbolic depictions or representations or something like that. It can do the literal and the figurative. And it can do all the things that 
serious literary fiction can do as well. It often doesn't, but it has the capacity to do that. So, as I say, science fiction has this incredible potential and a long tradition of um, not just engaging with ecological thought, but inhabiting it, elaborating it, expressing it, developing it. But also there's no reason why science fiction necessarily does any of that. It doesn't need to do that. And there's no reason why other genres can't do those things uh, or have their own more distinctive uh, generic affordances and capacities that they can use uh, to turn towards uh, ecological thought and depicting climate change or thinking about climate change. Uh, the category of climate fiction, um, I, I, I understand why it exists. Um, I've yet to find it critically useful. Um, it's very helpful in, 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 in marketing terms and it does allow um, a readership who would normally turn up their noses at science fiction to read science fiction. Um, if as if something like Stan Robinson, um, something like Ministry of the Future is called climate fiction, people who wouldn't touch a science fiction novel might read that. Um, so it does have that kind of usefulness. But I've yet to read a work of climate fiction that can't be read as science fiction. You know, even something like Barbara Kingsolver's Flight Behaviour. It's a easily accessible literary melodrama that centres on scientific knowledge about monarch butterflies. I don't understand why that isn't science fiction. I don't understand why you need a another label for it. But, you know, people do find the category useful. I don't have the power to wipe it out or make everyone forget it exists. <laughs> so... It's there and we make use of it. And there are people doing good work on climate fiction as well, really interesting work on climate fiction who do use the label and embrace the label. So if it's a way of helping, getting people to think about and engage with and be aware of climate catastrophe that we're in, then, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom. I won't stop it. <laughs> yeah, well... You make excellent points on the issue of genre, but you have emphasized uh, the utopian potential of science fiction, um, especially like in a recent uh, podcast interview you did for ELCI. Uh, but um, self-proclaimed or more self-conscious climate fiction often emphasizes explicitly the representations of catastrophe or disaster. So... Uh, do you think there's any didactic potential in these representations or do you find more power in reading the absences? Um, and do you think the representation itself can prompt action to what extent? Um, because you do there to ask in, in your book that what if impasse is actually transition? So where does your faith for a call to action sort of lie there? I suspect I've actually stolen that line from Imre Zayman. Um, <laughs> I must have put it in quote marks if I've used that. I wouldn't just plagiarise him. Um, yes, yeah, so I, I, I think there is a real danger with the eco-dystopias, partly because contemporary dystopian fiction can often be really unimaginative and lazy and trivialising. There's no reason why it must be like that, but you know it's very easy just in the wake of... I don't know, 80s cyberpunk to just show the outside world polluted, falling apart, um, dominated by corporations and raining a lot. You know, that once you have the visual images from Blade Runner available, you can just deploy them without thinking about them. 
And so there is that risk with eco-dystopias normalising catastrophe in some way. And that, you know, isn't necessarily the world's biggest problem. So you look at something like Wesley Chu's uh, Tao trilogy, uh, climate change is uh, just that kind of hoary old cliche of aliens engineering our atmosphere to better suit them. Or Tobias Buckle's Arctic Rising novels where set in a post-peak oil climate changed world, that's a backdrop uh, for thrillers with Bond-like villains. And I thoroughly enjoy them. Um, so I think that kind of fiction can exist and it's, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world that it does. Um, and clearly eco-dystopias do affect people. So again, my incapacity to read certain kinds of fiction, I'm baffled by people loving Margaret Atwood's Mad Adam novels. Um, people find them profound and moving and challenging and insightful, and that's fine. They strike me as really clumsy and awkward, and I'm mystified how a poet of her calibre can have such a tin ear for neologisms and things like that. For me, they just don't work. When she says they're not science fiction, my inclination is, you know, few science fiction's dodged a bullet there. <laughs> a good name is preserved. Or yes, they are science fiction, they're just not very good science fiction. But whatever we label them at the end, I, I'm not sure it matters that much. What does matter is that they are having this kind of positive effect on certain readerships. Um, so just because they don't work for me doesn't render them incapable of contributing to climate consciousness and thus to climate praxis. My emphasis on the utopian really, um, it is predicated on um, a particular notion of the utopian, I think. I, I don't think it's a single soul solution. I just think in, in these, the, these dark times, uh, just as in writing the book, I had to deploy humour because otherwise, as Jerry Canavan says in that blurb, it would be terrifying. Um, I think utopianism never exists on its own. It's, it, it's like utopia and dystopia aren't separate things. They're like a Merbius strip. They, you know, wind together. So if you go back to the origins, what I think was the origins of science fiction, uh, Thomas More's Utopia is not very optimistic. It strikes me as, a, always struck me as a really bleak work. Um, particularly the first half, the satire on the state of the nation, but also the, the utopia in the second half. Or, you know, that moment in Frankenstein where Victor's constructing the mate for the monster and he has this kind of vision of them uh, running off to South America and breeding. And it scares the shit out of him, but really that's the utopian moment. It's a vision of proletarian and anti-colonial revolution. And he just can't countenance it. Or in, in Verne, you have this kind of manic spreadsheet imagination that's constantly cataloguing, measuring and counting things, uh, recording things so they can be outdone. But there's also that um, wonderful encyclopedism, encyclopedism in something like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, where he just wants to show off all this incredible richness of marine life. It's like, um, you know, the kind of, it's like a kind of really not very manic Melville in Moby Dick you know he just wants to record it all and show it all so utopia and dystopia are always kind of uh, woven together but I think this current conjuncture a little bit of utopian thinking is necessary it's not a standalone solution and obviously utopianism has a bad name because of the way its discourse and its effective dimensions were hijacked by fascism, by Stalinism, by consumerism, by capitalism more generally, by neoliberalism and by you know the current 
charlatans in office, you know, that take back control and freedom day nonsense. Um, so there's, there's that wonderful bit in Jim Jarmusch's uh, zombie movie, The Dead Don't Die, where Steve Buscemi, who's playing this kind of Trumpian character, very pointedly called Frank Miller, has a baseball cap with the slogan, Keep America White Again. We see utopian discourse woven there with dystopian discourse. You know, they're, they're the kind of inseparable. But I think utopia thinking um, is important. I think that a novel like Stan Robinson's Ministry of the Future that depicts a kind of very carefully picked route through climate catastrophe that doesn't produce utopia, but produces something built on the ruins of this present that really must die, um, is really, really important interweaving of utopia and dystopia. And I think, um, you know, utopia, we have that notion that it's easier to imagine the end of the world and the end of capitalism. Bullshit. It really is easy to imagine the end of capitalism. All we have to do is imagine worlds organised differently. Um, and for some people, obviously, that will resemble very closely the end of the world. Um, but those aren't necessarily the people we need to worry about. Um, you know, Elon Musk, not really my concern. Um, and we can build from small practical acts, network them together, move us from tactics to strategies to policy to large-scale transformations. And as long as they're driven by um, genuine democratic control, I think that's, that, that's a real possibility. And we need hope. And I think we tend to misunderstand hope. We have that sense of hope as being a kind of very passive, uh, waiting for things in the hope that they'll work out. Hope, if we do it properly, is the enemy of the status quo. And I think hope needs to be um, promulgated and exercised uh, if we're going to find any kind of way through the mess we're in. Sorry, that got very excited there. no that's great i mean to quote one of the last lines of your book which is delightfully quotable eco-socialism or barbarism i mean that is really a standard um quote um thanks for not giving away the last line of the book as well i don't want people no, no, to the, the last get the line we'll, we'll keep for people to read but like that takeaway i think really needs to be emphasized and yeah it, it could be a blurb for for the book as well. <laughs> we did actually, my partner did actually try to get Vin Diesel to blurb the book, but he never responded. Oh, no, that would have been amazing. Well, his loss. <laughs> uh, on that uh, topic of, you know, uh, hope, uh, do you, what do you think representations of climate change will look like in the future? Can you already see some patterns um, emerging and regardless of your answer, this is, uh, I think, a bit of an optimistic question because it assumes that there will be a future to represent climate change. Yes. You so, know, it's like yeah. a, that uh, uh, image at the start of Gauche's Great Derangement where he imagines you know, these people in the future where everything's been ruined, but there are still libraries and bookstores and museums and art galleries. And, eh. um, so I think, you know, on the one hand, um, climate destabilization, climate chaos as they become more and more evident in everyday life, all fiction is going to have to struggle, wrestle with how to deal with that. I'm not sure the mundane novel, the mundane film, have yet developed the representational techniques they need um, to represent what we, we, we need to start thinking of as a realistic world. 
And there has to be, you know, uh, a limit how many times authors can get away with you know, mentioning the weather or having a character fleetingly notice uh, a news report in the background about a catastrophe somewhere else in the world. That is, that is no longer adequate. Um, but neither film nor literature have um, proven themselves particularly adept at representing what we might think of as, as systemic violence or slow violence. So I'm not sure we yet, they yet have the tools to come to terms with the multiple paces of violence and catastrophe that climate change is bringing. Um, but I'm pretty certain we're going to see a lot of books in the near future with uh, that kind of uh, publicity guff on the front of no longer the stuff of science fiction. On the other hand, one of the most exciting things to happen in science fiction in this millennium has been this kind of growing presence of black, indigenous and writers of colour and writers from the global south. And their takes on this, even when filtered through the publishing or film systems that privilege readers of power in the global north, their takes on this are going to be vital, among the most vital because they're the ones most disproportionately affected. Um, oh, God, I've got too many hands now. On the third hand, <laughs> as you say, maybe there isn't the future, so there's all unnecessary concerns. On the fourth exactly. hand, maybe changes will be far more radical than we, we're really prepared to imagine yet. Maybe rather than consuming fictions, readers will begin to adopt the imaginative tools of speculation, of extrapolation, of world building, of utopia. And maybe they'll put their Kindles aside and start using the critical creativity they learn from engaging with fiction to begin imagining and constructing better worlds right where they live. And on how many are we up to now? And on the fifth hand, maybe we'll all evolve into some kind of post-human beings with additional limbs. So that list of points doesn't sound quite so embarrassingly weird. I always tell my students, if you say on the one hand, you have to have on the other hand, but no more hands <laughs> than that, and I've just blown it. <laughs> Thank you so much uh, for your time and your insights. It's been just so illuminating. I'm sure our listeners will be just delighted and have a, a great time like I just have. Um, can you very, very briefly uh, also give us a hint of the two more books that are coming before we wrap this up? Yeah, absolutely. And, and before I say that, thank you so much for inviting me on. It's been lovely talking to you. And uh, I've got a stack of marking I should be doing. So this, is, this has been brilliant. Um, <laughs> Productive procrastination. <laughs> absolutely. Um, so actually, there's a side project I want to do, first of all, which is uh, something about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, because we're coming up to the 50th anniversary. And it's this kind of... It's one of those uh, films that I've always found incredibly rich and remarkable. And um, over, you know, the last decade or so of my thinking, it's become increasingly evident. It's one of the key petrocultural texts of the late 20th century. Um, it's, it's about life when fuel runs out, um, amongst many other things. So there's a little side project on that. But uh, the next book um, is um, I want to write about monsters and climate. The hook of it is a familiar enough one, the Mount Tambora eruption that leads to the year without summer, which leads to the Shelley Byron party being stuck indoors, writing ghost stories, uh, monster stories. But from there, we get Frankenstein, of course, and then via Polidori and Byron's fragments, uh, we get vampires. So um, I want to start think. Uh, I want to do something around monsters and climate and trying to track their descendants. And interestingly, of course, 
what I was saying about Frankenstein as offering this vision of uh, post-colonial rebellion. Um, one of the first works of fiction inspired by Dracula is um, about a Haitian vampire. Um, so, you know, so revolution is going to be in there as well as part of this. Um, there's also the possibility that I've not really dug down into yet. Um, Ghosh mentions it in uh, his most recent book, The Nutmeg's Curse, that there's been some recent research linking um, the climate change that we know happened because of colonialism in the Americas, where um, the destruction of indigenous populations happened on such a scale that the Amazon grew back so rapidly it was pulling down carbon led to climate change and most of the witches executed in Europe uh, are tied to agricultural crimes. So whether there's a link between that moment in history and another kind of monster, so I'm going to dig down into a bit further before figuring out whether it belongs in the book. And the other book is one that's really focused on uh, the great acceleration in science fiction, um, how in that period after the Second World War um, we get all kinds of complex interactions with thinking about carbon culture. So even something like, something as familiar as uh, Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, everyone in the future lives in plastic coated houses over which fuel might be sprayed to burn them. And there's the sequence at the end with cars racing around the ring road and then the, the uh, outbreak of atomic warfare. And those are um, petrocultural, but also that one of the key markers of um, a short Anthropocene is that moment in time. And that really came from thinking actually about the the, the opening of uh, Phil Dick's novel Time Out of Joint, where Regal Gum reaches into the room to switch off the lights, switch on the lights and the light switch isn't there. And, you know, that develops in a very different way in the novel. But what happens if the light switch isn't there? What happens if we don't have this um, energy infrastructure being constructed uh, to produce profit around us. So those are the uh, kind of next things, but I'm also really, really behind schedule on two books I'm co-editing. So that and Moving <laughs> House is my summer. Amazing, all sounds so exciting, cannot wait. And once again, thank you for being here with us today. My absolute pleasure, thank you for having me. And that's all we have time for in part one. Be sure to tune in for part two, where we talk to Kate Rigby, Christina Codd, and Peter Riley about definitions of environmental humanities, what the future might hold, and how to learn more.